0: Welcome to the Infinite Women Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Larissa Reinhardt, author of the new book First to the Front: The Untold Story of Dickie Chappelle, Trailblazing Female War Correspondent. So can we start with a general introduction
1: to Dickie and her career? So Dickie Chappelle was a war correspondent from the end of World War II through the beginning of the Vietnam War. And this is an incredibly pivotal period in world history, right? This encompasses the very beginning and the early era of the Cold War. And so much of what we are experiencing today and so many of the events that we see unfolding are um, a result of or reverberations of these conflicts that, that Dickie Chappelle covered. And the thing that I love about uh Dickie's story is not just that she was there and not that she was just documenting what was happening but she had an incredibly unique perspective that very much came out of her being a woman um and the experiences she had as a woman um because of her gender and not only did she report uh on Um, stories that were were unfolding, but she had a particularly brilliant capacity to see where news was going to happen before anyone else did because of her unique understanding of both the military and diplomatic peacekeeping efforts of the United States. So a lot of these stories that I'm talking about that she covered um, in my book, are quite new in the historical record and shed a new light on events that we think we know everything about. So yeah, she's an incredible figure.
0: (laughs) One of the things that struck me when I was reading the book was the fact that every time she seemed to be making a little bit of progress, something would happen. And so for example, the work that she did in Okinawa during World War II, she wasn't allowed to publish most of the incredible um, you know, photos and writing when she actually got back to the US. So can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So there were so many boundaries and borders and obstacles put up in Vicky's way because she was a woman, right? And Today, women experience that. I've experienced that. I'm sure you have experienced that. And so in Okinawa, right, this was her first big reporting assignment. And she really came up against the strictures imposed upon her because of her gender. So the deal was, in World War II, women were not actually allowed to be combat correspondents. They weren't allowed to cover combat they had to be where there were nurses, which were generally in the rear areas. Um, and Dicky wasn't particularly interested in following this rule. She always wanted to make sure everyone was safe. She didn't want to, you know, um, be a burden to to any of the Marines that she was covering or soldiers there on out. But she always carried her equipment, um, got to wherever they were going under her own steam. She never asked for help. And she never got in the, quote, way in a lot of the sense that many journalists do, right? That was never her. She was always able to seamlessly integrate herself herself into whatever unit she was covering. And we can talk about that later. But what happened in World War II was she got permission from the press officer in the Pacific Fleet to go on to Okinawa because there wasn't really a lot of fighting to begin with. The the Japanese army had embedded themselves in the caves of Okinawa. We didn't know um, the full extent of their forces and it seemed like they had completely abandoned it. So she was permitted to go ashore. But despite this, um, once the uh, press uh, admiral back in DC got whiff of her being on um, the island, he, uh, had her arrested, took her, revoked her military credentials and actually slandered her, um, in the press. He gave an anonymous quote, basically saying that she wanted to be there because there were, you know, hundreds of men running around with their shirts off. Right. So, I mean, yeah, he quite frankly, like slut shamed her in the press and really did a lot of damage to her name and for what for doing her job and doing it well and all of the marines that she was there with really admired her and in fact um didn't want to follow the order to have her arrested and send her um, back to guam and then eventually the united states um And just again and again in her career, she came up against these obstacles. But like so many women, right, Um, she found a way to pivot and to find these little loopholes that she could squeeze through. And because she was forced to be agile to do her job, she was actually often able to do her job better than her male colleagues. She definitely
0: seems to have had a very activist spirit in the sense that she wanted to help people with the stories that she was sharing.
1: Absolutely. This is a real point of contention in her biography and her um, sort of legacy as a journalist, right? Because as a journalist, you're you're supposed to be, quote, objective um, and not get involved with the people you are reporting on. Dicky definitely crossed that line period end of discussion in several cases. You know, she was covering the Hungarian Revolution and she risked her life and her um her her safety and her freedom to go out into the frozen tundra. And retrieve refugees that had gotten lost in the dark or scared by automatic fire from um, machine guns or from star shells that were exploding over them. And she ended up bringing hundreds of refugees from Hungary into Austria. Um, Later on, she was embedded with the anti-Castro militias in Miami and actively aided them in building arms um, and also polishing bullets, which was probably exceptionally problematic, but um, that's who she is. Um, On the other hand, in the era that she was reporting, objective journalism really meant a white male's point of view and no other. And while we had... Really, just incredible reporting in World War II from the likes of Ernie Pyle and so on and so forth. Once we go to the Cold War, once we leave that World War II era, we see this real regression in journalism where you have the boys' club of reporters talking to the boys' club of politicians. And the politicians or the press secretaries or the officials or what have you tell the reporters what is happening in their view, and the reporters write it down and then they print it without any follow-up, without any questions, without any interest in actually discovering what's going on. And that wasn't what Dicky wanted to do. She wanted to see what was happening for herself. Now, the other thing that happened to her was, again, during the Hungarian Revolution, she also crossed the border to report Uh, To to go into Hungary and all the way uh, to, to be embedded with a unit of freedom fighters there. And on her way, she was arrested by the secret police. She was imprisoned in a communist jail for six weeks, most of which time she was held in solitary confinement. She was threatened with torture, rape, execution by hanging and interminable imprisonment. And the result of this was that she came to believe that she would never be released And that she would live the rest of her life and die in prison. And so she really came to understand what it was to live under tyranny in a way that most white Americans cannot. And she forms a real sense of empathy and solidarity with the people who were fighting for freedom. Whether that was against Western imperialism, as was the case in her coverage of the Algerian War of Independence against French colonialism. Or against communism, as in her coverage of the early Vietnam War era. And so because of this, she had a reason and the instinct to believe the people that she was reporting on and to believe that their stories had validity and they were important. And she wrote Right in this manner. She wrote giving credence to the people, regardless of color, creed, or geography. And in this way, I think she was actually more objective than the majority of her peers. Because one, she went there, she visits, she, you know, was the first to Algeria. She was one of the first in Vietnam. She was one of the first in Cuba. She was one of the first in the Dominican Republic, and on and on and on. And she also believe the people who are doing the fighting or doing the dying if they were civilians caught in the crossfire so um and this was taken to be an activist point of view but in my judgment this is actually an objective point of view that she had
0: as someone with a journalism degree we were taught that you know it is all about objectivity and this book really raises the question for me of is objectivity actually desirable when we're telling people's story because you mentioned empathy i'm wondering if there's also a connection to calling women emotional to Mm. undermine what they're saying um so for me it was really raising that question of what is the actual value of extreme objectivity where we have gotten to the point where we are excluding empathy And Mm -hmm. frankly, common sense, because I feel like you do see that as well with even today with the just blind acceptance of whatever this person or that person tells you or the false equivalencies that you see where it's like, well, we've got a climate change scientist and we're also going to have some rando conspiracy theorist climate denier because there is this idea of that is balance is presenting both Mm -hmm. sides, even when one side is clearly stronger the more logical and
1: reasonable and supported absolutely and i think you have in our present world with the constant sort of um bifurcation of points of view right you can think you're being objective because in the logical matrix which you have created in your facebook algorithm this is objective there is no sign to the signified it's just sound and fury do you know Um, and in order to be a, an objective journalist, um, in order to tell the truth, right, this is the point of objectivity is to tell the truth. You have to have a sense of what the truth is and balance is not telling one truth and then giving, um, a platform to someone telling a lie simply because it contradicts the truth. Telling the truth is telling, telling the truth that is based in, reality now of course there are and and i think this is where empathy comes in right we do have different realities we do have different points of view we do have different experiences that color how we approach the world and it's important to take those things into consideration uh as a journalist and understand that not in regard to climate change per se but um in regard to economic theory right what works in the united states doesn't work in scandinavia doesn't work in australia where you are or maybe it doesn't work in the united states either but we won't get into that i mean i wasn't um, going to say it <laughs> <laughs> but in any case there is a balance of objectivity but it has to be uh, it has to be rooted in at least something that has not only an internal logic, but a logic that applies universally.
0: I think what we're getting into is that obviously you can't go too far in either direction, because if Mm -hmm. you are too emotional, whatever that may mean, then you have lost sight and you've gone from, instead of just trusting, you know, whatever this government official is telling you to just believing whatever this other person is telling you, even if you haven't seen evidence of that yourself. So what I think we're getting at here is the need for nuance and mm-hmm. context and mm-hmm. seeing the picture regardless of what different factors may be pushing you towards in either direction.
1: Absolutely. And that's another thing that I find so fascinating and so inspiring about Dickie Chappelle's story. some of the, one of the things that I don't talk about very often, I do talk about in my book, to a great extent, is that she spent, because her military credentials were revoked, she spent the post-war years covering Europe as it rebuilt. And what was happening there at the time, right? You have this initial push and pull between the United States and communist Russia. And she sees people who are living in Warsaw and, you know, previous um, bomb shelters or buildings that are about to fall down, or houses that want, were once in an affluent suburb, but are now home to 12 families, and one of whom lives in the root cellar and there's no door because it was machine gunned off, right? So she understands the deprivation that these people are experiencing and the draw of communist promises of freedom and plenty and equality. So when we come into the Cold War, when we have, you know, this McCarthyist attitude in the United States and elsewhere, she hates communism, right? There's no doubt about that. She was imprisoned in a communist jail. Um, She was the victim of psychological torture. And she knows that they are despots. But what she also understands very clearly is that just because someone lives under a communist regime does not make them a bad person. It is the government who is waging war against their people and people around the world. And so she never painted, right, all the citizens of these communist countries of the of the Soviet bloc with the same brush. And she always tried to extol their humanity. Even when she immediately got out of prison, her first article was called Nobody Owes Me a Christmas, published in Reader's Digest magazine. Basically, the point of the story was that even while she was in this communist, this hell, this cold, this frozen hell, that on Christmas, this jailer gave her an extra piece of bacon, which was a big deal, right? Because she's on a starvation diet. So you get an extra piece of fat and it is Christmas morning. And she saw in that this seed of compassion that exists everywhere. And that's what she wrote about. That is the message she took from her ordeal was that we are all human beings. We all have the capacity for compassion and that we are all deserving of compassion. So again, nuance, as you said, is so important to objective journalism um, and so needed in our world right now, which is ever more complicated and ever more in need of a nuanced and compa- frankly compassionate. Um, understanding and telling of these stories. When we're talking about that particular
0: story, she also had trouble getting other sort of darker, more serious pieces about it published, whereas the, you know, sort of more compassionate, uplifting one was the one that was considered more palatable rather than her talking about more the horrors of her experience.
1: Yeah, she wrote... I mean, I, part of her therapy, right, was just writing pages and pages and pages. I mean, I think there's hundreds of pages in her archives about her experience. And none of them are redundant. And she tried to publish more of that specifically in her autobiography that came out in 1961. And they really redacted a lot of that. And she could not get a piece published that was about... um the horrors that she experienced. I don't really think people wanted to hear that. People didn't want to believe her either. There was this very strange, and I'll just be frank with you, rape culture reaction to her imprisonment. They literally said she deserved it. And her fellow journalist, said she deserved it or that she really actually wanted it that she was trying to get arrested to get the story or that she should have known better. And the echoes of, of course, how rape culture, people who are okay with rape talk about women who experience rape were just so palpable and just like a voice coming right back at me. That really really hit home with me because so often, um, women are, uh, blamed for the obstacles that they encounter and are not given credit for when they overcome them, whether that's trauma or career or personal. Um, it is, it is this really just mace right that it's your fault and it's you know and you didn't do it you didn't overcome it by yourself either so let's talk about
0: ptsd because yes. i don't know that we've explicitly said that clearly she did have ptsd from that experience it's not actually uncommon for a lot of journalists in war zones to um develop this condition but What's interesting is that she was one of the early advocates for um, how to identify it, publicizing that this is a real issue. Here are the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was, you know, earlier in her career when there were still a lot of myths around PTSD.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, as I said at the beginning, you know, her... Sense of empathy and her knowledge was developed because she was a woman. So, because she was a woman in World War II, she had to be stationed with nurses. And though she did get to the front, she began her career at Alameda Hospital in Oakland. And from there, she went on to the USS Samaritan, which was a hospital ship that took wounded from Iwo Jima onto Saipan. And so she saw them being loaded right off of Iwo Jima in the middle of the campaign. And then during their nine day trip to Saipan, she spent all of her time talking to um, those Marines who had been wounded. And she saw, right, that they didn't stop. The battle didn't stop once they were out of it. They continued to relive it in their mind. They continued to relive it while they slept and it woke them up with nightmares. That it continued to plague them in their fears of what would come next if, you know, they had lost a limb or their hearing or their sight or all of the above, um, or even if they hadn't, right? How could they possibly relate to family members who had no context to understand what they had gone through and they were left on this sort of island of, of loneliness. And she wrote extensively about this, um, epidemic that was plaguing um millions of veterans coming home not just in the United States but around the world um and then she also actually experienced PTSD and, um coming home from that campaign she developed an incredible stutter she didn't want to leave the house um she wept you know constantly um and it was just you know sort of by her own grit and the desire to continue telling these types of stories that she was able to overcome it. And then of course, she again fell into serious PTSD after her experience in Fo Street Prison in, in Hungary. And then I believe she didn't really recover. So many people do not recover from PTSD. Um, and that um, that was a real driving factor in her career. Um, people with PTSD often try to relive the trauma in order to make it come out somehow differently this time that they, they instinctually or unconsciously feel that if they can do it differently, then the trauma will be reversed. And I feel like this is really something, um, that drove her, um, in addition to, to so many other motivations, but this was part of her continued, um, Campaign to cover uh, combat. And I think we're getting back into the
0: activist versus objectivity and the idea of not necessarily that she was putting herself in the story, but you're writing about things that matter to you, that you are driven to care about through your own personal experiences. Um, and I mean, I think that's incredibly valuable in journalism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, she also ascribed devout val- personal value to things that were universal, universally valuable that many of her colleagues did not recognize. I mean, she, for instance, recognized Southeast Asia as a um, real turning point in the Cold War before m- many other people. And she Because of this was, I want to say, one of the first to march with the South Vietnamese Marines along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. She was the first journalist to jump with the South Vietnamese Airborne, the first to be embedded with the Sea Swallows, who were an anti-communist guerrilla army in the Mekong Delta, one of the first to be with the South Vietnamese Navy on the Mekong Delta, and on and on and on. And this was 1961 to 1965. Um, before combat, um, Marines were sent in. And in fact, she was the first person to publish a photograph of a Marine in combat in 1963, two years before they were supposed to be in combat. Um, so because she ascribed personal importance to these stories, to these um, fights for freedom, uh she was able to understand that they were universally important before so many of her other colleagues. The
0: anti-communism has come up a couple times.
1: Yeah. But
0: I believe she was also embedded with Castro's forces in the lead up to him coming to power. And then, you know, however many years later, she's covering the people trying to overthrow him. Is that correct?
1: That's right. So what happened was Castro was not, um, Okay, now we're going to get into the weeds. We're going to get really deep in the weeds. So Castro was not communist to begin with. He might have been socialist, but Dickey believed that all peoples and all nations had the right to self-determination. And if they wanted to be socialist, so be it. She didn't care. Socialism is not the same thing as, you know, Soviet communism. And again, this is nuance that lacked in so much other journalism of the day. And she talked to a lot, you know, there was sort of this propaganda machine in the United States about trying to sort of paint Castro and his troops with a red brush um, before this was true. And she was very adamant in her original articles that, no, in fact, he was not communist. Now, what she said very clearly and in published articles was that if America ceases to subsidize Cuban sugar imports which were their their largest export, that Castro would not be able to rebuild the country that the previous dictatorship of Batista had plundered and ruined and exploited and terrorized and that he would turn to the Soviets for help. Lo and behold, the United States Congress did not renew the su- sugar subsidies and sugar imports. He had no money. He was holding together the nation with scotch tape, and he turned to the people who would fund him. Now, she also identified Castro as a, you know, burgeoning despot to begin with. She said he is best when he has an enemy. And this is true of so many despots. And she identified this while she was there in whatever it was, 1959, 1958. So she had her misgivings. But she had faith in the Cuban people. And she felt that the United States didn't betray Castro. They betrayed the Cuban people who had a legitimate claim to self-determination. And so when he did go to the Soviets, when he did turn communist, her want, her desire, her largest concern was to tell the story of the Cuban people who were suffering under this regime. Not how it affected America. Yes, she was concerned with that. But her most immediate concern was the people who were suffering under a communist regime. And that's who she wrote about. And that's who she really spoke to. If we could get into her personal relationships
0: a Mm. bit, because um, obviously that is a big part of her life. And as we're talking about the barriers that were put in her path, I would argue that her husband was the biggest one.
1: Yeah. So she married Tony Chappelle, Anthony Chappelle, when she was 19 years old. He was over 40 at the time. And according to his son, by another marriage, he never told Dickie about them when he married her or from years later. And he had several children from these marriages, none of whom he was supporting. And one of his sons who became a really big part of of Dickie's life and who Dickie really, you know, supported and loved. And he ended up joining the Air Force because of the patriotism that she imbued him with. um, He said of his father, he was the greatest swindler on the face of the earth. And he had no idea why a woman like Dickie would be with a man like him.
0: Well, I just have to point out when you mentioned that you know he didn't tell her that he had been married. He was still married. So oh yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, he years, was still married.
0: Yeah, it was years <laughs> before she found out that they weren't legally married because he was a secret bigamist.
1: Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he it just gets it. worse. <laughs> it just gets worse. It's just, you forget how bad it is that he like got a quote divorce in Mexico. Like you can't get your you can't get a divorce in Mexico when you got married in the United States, like basic. So anyway, his that that wife, Camilla, came back suing him for um, abandonment, so that she could take care of her son. Um, so in any case, right, he was, I believe, from her Dickie's own writing, emotionally abusive incredibly controlling and manipulative and he he was her photography teacher he was this man in a position of authority he was a gatekeeper to the world she wanted to enter and he started really grooming her when she was still a teenager and she was in new york city by herself it was 1939 right Great Depression still. World is on the brink of war. It's very uncertain times. And he really wrapped this distorted sense of reality around her. And whenever she tried to get out, he would move the goalposts. He would move the logic to keep her in this ever sort of evolving cage. And it wasn't until... 14 years later that she finally freed herself from him and she had to get the their relationship like legally annulled because he started to become violent he showed up at her door at her apartment door with a gun at the time right um you could as a woman uh receive legal protection if you were married right you get a restraining order from your husband but because as you so rightfully pointed out they weren't ever actually married she didn't have that same legal protection um so she had to somehow go through a divorce attorney to find this right so it was an incredibly difficult obstacle to overcome but it was one that she, I think, was very proud of herself for overcoming and that she took as much as she could from it. Right. She I, I, I'm I, not um, trying to say that people who are victimized shouldn't process their trauma and, and 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 we shouldn't be respectful of of their trauma. But one of the ways that she dealt with um, her abuse was to to rise above it and to not let it define the rest of her life and so once she divorced him or once she freed uh, herself of him that's when her career really started to flourish so she took her freedom and she just started to fly Um, and uh, you know I think it's extraordinary that she was able to get out after so many years of emotional and psychological abuse. Um, uh, and again, like I didn't want to write about him, but I wanted to show women and and men, my readers in general, um, that this kind of abuse happens to everyone or it can happen to anyone, regardless of how strong you are, regardless of how smart you are or accomplished you are. This can happen to anyone. And I think it is very
0: powerful how she reclaimed her Mm. life and her power over that life because he used his position as her teacher, as you were saying, to really push this narrative throughout their relationship that he knows more than she does. She will always be the student. She will always be inferior and therefore has to listen to what he was saying. And he's expecting her to act as his assistant, his caregiver, as well as being the primary breadwinner while still somehow keeping her tethered with that Mm. false illusion.
1: And one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is that people like who wrote about her later, right? Like her biographers took what he said as true. They said she wasn't a good photographer. They said she wasn't a good writer. And I'm like, National Geographic does not publish bad writing or bad photographs, okay? let alone all the other publications that she was in. Also, you could just look at her photographs. Also, you could just read her writing and see what an extraordinary writer and photographer she is. You know, one of the things that is so great about her photographs that, again, like was ahead of her time, she had this real sense of the snapshot of capturing the moment as it unfolded. There was no staging to her photographs. And this became, you know, the practice of uh, journalists and photojournalism in the Vietnam War, right? But she predated this. She was a trailblazer in this regard. And again, the same for her journalism, you know, her style of investigative journalism that was sympathetic to the subject of the story became the norm in the Vietnam War. Again, she predated this by not a year but by a decade, two decades, actually. So, um, you know, just these narratives that are um, espoused and by even abusive men continue to be retold as if they were true. And just on a larger point, I, I am just so excited about this age of women's history I'm not the only one looking back at women's history and saying, oh, they said she was sexually promiscuous. I'm guessing that meant that she had control of her body. Oh, she was pushy. I'm guessing that meant she was brilliant. And rewriting those narratives to be accurate, to not the men's interpretation of the woman's life, but the woman's life. So thank you for for bringing that up
0: especially when we have so much documentation from Dickie herself that mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, and what's interesting is he wasn't just undermining her psychologically. He was actively sabotaging her with things like, "Oh, you can't go on this assignment because I need you here to take care of me. And and she would. And And then there was their, I'm going to call it their European tour. Mm -hmm. It was a Mm -hmm. massive disaster, I believe, largely because of him.
1: When she was covering the post-war reconstruction efforts before the Marshall Plan, right? So this is real misery and terror for the people of Europe, whether you're in Germany or Poland or France. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. And it was hard conditions, to be sure. But, you know, Dickie was there to work to do document to do this documentation you know she was not just reporting for magazines and journals she was also working for save the children and for the quakers and other um aid organizations and so while she's doing this incredibly important work that helped um americans understand the necessity for rebuilding and ultimately i believed helped push through the marshall plan which was um, invaluable to uh, rebuilding Europe. Um, he really didn't do anything except for make her be his nurse and lover and um, psychologist and cook and maid and, 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 and so again, you know, how far could she have gone? Were it not for this load on her back? Right. But how strong was she when she got it off? And I think that's the real, um, that's the real end to the story of his story um and to and to their relationship was that yeah it was deplorable and awful and maybe she would have gone further if it had never happened but I know in my life right we all have obstacles and um difficulties and we can only ever reclaim what has happened to us if we are to transcend it um and She did, even under the most difficult of circumstances, better than most. And then once she was able to function on her own as an independent human being, she was able to just, I think, be a game changer on so many different levels.
0: Now, in the book, you don't get into her relationship with her mother too much. But my impression mm. was that her mother wanted her to settle down and have a family. Um, she encouraged her to stay with Tony, even knowing that mm. he was abusive. He cheated on her, so on oh, and so forth. Yeah, the, oh, God, yeah. we haven't even gotten into the cheating. Um, yeah. But, you know, it seems like it was very much that mindset of an awful husband is better than no husband at all.
1: Well, you know, I think it's this right boys will be boys locker room talk. Where have we heard that before? Um and it's 1930 uh, well it's at the time it was 1955 that she was um separating herself from Tony. Um but even before that, you know, um Dickie was born in 1919. You know, she was a teenager in the great depression. And I think her parents were pretty liberal for the day, right? Like she went to school. She was valedictorian. She went to MIT. You don't achieve these things. Well, some people do, but most people don't achieve these things without a supportive home. Um, Likewise, her brother, uh, Robert Meyer was, very successful person he was a geologist at Wis- um, Wisconsin University at um at Madison and and a, as far as I know, a wonderful human being um but she was I think Edna she was a woman of her time and um there is you know uh, an expectation that there was an expectation and still to a degree is an expectation that a woman's, Goals and dreams and voice and independence and humanity uh, come second to to that of her husband. Um, now, and, and the other thing was like, Tony was a charmer, right? He could charm anyone into anything. He was a great salesman. This was his skill. This was his gift. And so he really charmed her family. Um, but to all of their credit and Edna's credit, Once Dickie really like laid on the table, everything that was happening, they did support her. And just like so many other victims of abuse, whether that's emotional, psychological, or physical, right? So often the impulse is to hide what is happening to you because your abuser tells you it is your fault and that you should be ashamed for being the victim of abuse. And again, like, that Dickie was able to say, no, I'm not going to be ashamed. No, this is not myself, my fault. And I will be my best self. And if you're not willing to support me in that journey, go with me on that journey. Then, then you can just stay where you are, but I'm not staying there anymore. Um, although I do think, um, what's really funny about Edna, who I don't, I just kind of relate to." Um, just for my own mom, who, you know, is a bit of a worrywart herself with all my sort of teenage exploits. Um, But anyway, Edna didn't want Dickie ever to fly in a plane. And all Dickie ever wanted to do was fly in planes. And Edna made her promise that she wouldn't. And then so Dickie goes off to MIT and she spends all this time in the Boston Airfield. She finally tucks her way. To, uh, she breaks her promise, tucks her way onto a plane and never wants to land. And she flunks out of MIT because of this, comes home and, you know, to this poor woman's like nerves, Dickie gets a job at a flying circus and takes part of her salary in flying lessons. So, you know, it's like Edna Ed, Edna really like tried to meet her daughter where she was. But Dickie was so far ahead of her time. So, yes, like Edna was like, don't, you know, how can you leave your husband? This is what marriage, this is what life is. But once Dickie like laid it on the table, Edna, as she always did, um, came to her side. Um, so she always had um, her family's her family's support.
0: I think it's important to note that, as you noted, the support of that family is not something that's guaranteed mm. by any means. And when we're talking about a an abusive partner pushing this narrative that, you know, this is your fault, no one mm-hmm. will believe you, that's not just this person. Controlling person who has a lot of influence saying that this is something that, as you noted, she was blamed and basically, you know, rape cultured mm-hmm. for being imprisoned and tortured under yeah. a despotic regime. So yes. the fact is that any woman or any person who is experiencing intimate abuse is told, not just by their partner, but often by society, that you will not be taken seriously. And that does extend to men. I mean, obviously a lot of times on this podcast, I talk about it's because she was a woman. And Mm -hmm. certainly there is an issue around believing women, but when it comes to men being abused as well, there is a definite pushback of, well, what do you mean your wife hits you? Like, aren't you Mm -hmm. the man? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think we just need to acknowledge that it wasn't just, Tony telling yes
1: that's her. right
0: it was everything yeah
1: that that it's this whole society societal support right of this abuse and I think that goes back to this extent extension of this narrative that she wasn't good enough which is why I actually believe that more of us don't know about Dickie Chappelle about this incredible figure because the narrative of the abuser was the narrative that was believed into right, 2020, 2023, whenever my book came out. Hopefully I'm changing this narrative about Dicky. And my life's goal is to change that narrative about so many other women, whether it's women, you know, living their life today, I hope they understand that they are the writers of their own narrative or women in, you know, in the historical record, that we need to rewrite their narratives that's in a way that is more accurate as to who they were and what they did and give them the credit they deserve for their accomplishments. I mean, you look at the victims of Kevin Spacey, right? Like those were all men. And one of the things, right, I am I think about Me Too a lot, right? Like a lot of women, I was a victim of um, sexual harassment and sexual assault. I don't know any woman who wasn't um, a victim of that on varying degrees. And actually one of the most me- meaningful um narratives to come out of the mean Too movement was of brendan frazier when he was groped at i think the golden globes and I, my reaction was like oh my god you, wait a minute i was groped well when i was a waitress and that's not okay like i never got that before i was like that's just part of being a waitress um so yeah, it is. It's 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 across all genders this kind of a, this kind of abuse and this kind of saddling the victim with the blame for that abuse. But right, that is the ultimate defense of the abuser. That's how they get away with it, whether that's on an interpersonal level or on a societal level, in where one group is oppressing uh, an entirely other group right? It is their fault. They're not smart enough. They're not civilized. They don't speak the same language and on and on and on. It's their fault. No, that's not our narrative anymore. It's not their fault. It's the fault of the abuser.
0: And I think a big part of the pushback when men say that they've been abused or harassed is men don't want to think of themselves as potentially vulnerable. And if you see Mm -hmm. someone like Terry Crews, who's, you know, this huge muscular guy yeah. and, you know, other men see that, you know, even Terry Cruz can be victimized. Yeah. Or Matthew McConaughey also, you know? Yeah. And it really throws into stark relief that anyone is vulnerable to this. And that makes people under, understandably very uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. your discomfort doesn't mean you get to invalidate someone else's story
1: yeah also just side note i think now that i'm thinking about this and talking about it out loud like one messed up thing is right as soon as men started talking about their abuse it legitimized women not taking responsibility for their abuse it can happen to men too so it must be not their fault because they're men but when it was just women speaking up it's like what Oh, you know, she probably was wearing a short skirt or whatever, you know? Yeah, I think we're
0: getting back into the 100% of the blame is yours, but 0% of the credit.
1: Yeah.
0: I think it really comes down to people want to believe that we are in control of our own lives. Mm. And therefore, yeah, it makes us feel unsafe. It makes us feel like things are out of control. And rather than processing those difficult emotions, people just lash out at the person who is making them uncomfortable just by telling their own truth.
1: Yeah, well, and I think also when we are cut off from each other, there can be no sense of empathy. There can be no sense of exchange or communion because we are just alone. We're alone in all this. And as Hannah Arendt says, loneliness is the seed of totalitarianism, right? If you can isolate everyone, then you can have no sense of togetherness, no sense of community, no sense of strength or security. Um, And uh, yeah, again, this is like, it all feeds back into this idea of, of an abuser, of controlling women's narratives, of rewriting who we are as individuals and rewriting our history collectively as women to be accurate and to reflect the strength we have and the solidarity we have, and quite frankly, the numbers we have. But one of the things that I'm encountering, which is so inspiring and so encouraging to me, is that there are a lot of women archivists who are going through these piles of paper that have never been organized, never been taken seriously, and are just sort of thrown together going through them, digitizing them, keywording them and making them available for study. And I'm writing my second book now about um, Jeanette Rankin. You know, the reason I'm able to, her archives are so dispersed, right? They're in Montana, they're in Georgia, they're in Pennsylvania, they're in New York. I don't have the money to go to all those places, stay at all those places. And I'm a mother of two, you know, I can't do it. But because these archivists, have digitized them and keyworded them, I'm able to access them from anywhere, which has been absolutely incredible and instrumental in writing this book. And I truly believe, I mean, this isn't kind of a hyperbolic statement, but this kind of democratization of archival resources will revolutionize our capacity to write women's histories. And I get the chills at thinking about the possibilities therein.
0: Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast. And remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.